Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, Budden Brooks, Part 10, Chapter 4. Uh, that was the last I ever saw of him. Decrific says, Willful desertion and neglect is surely a cause for divorce, but it will undoubtedly take him take time to enact. It's a regular theme in books from this period, so it must have been quite common. It highlights how precarious the situation was at the time and how things tend to snowball once things have started going downhill, especially in such an inert society. Once the momentum gets going, it follows natural laws, and it's extremely hard to turn things around. It's <coughs> um, just funny how um, Tony's daughter has copied or you know, taken after her mother so closely in that they both seem to now have a knack for choosing terrible men and I think for Tony's part at least there's this kind of obsession with like clout you know she's so insecure about the family's clout and participating in it and um, you know contributing to that clout I guess that I feel like that tunnel vision she has about it is easily manipulated You know, a man just needs to come along and promise her the world, and she goes for it hook, line, and sinker, and it seems they've done that between them three times now with various men. Oops, sorry, I hit the microphone. (coughs) Anyway, that was my thoughts on this. Um, We are up to, what are we up to here? Chapter five. I think, I might be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure... Book 10, chapter 5, is the chapter that I read mistakenly back in, like, part 1 or part 2. Really early on in this book, I somehow flipped to the wrong chapter, and it was, like, literally 600 pages further than I was meant to be into the book. And I read the whole chapter without realizing that, and whilst reading it, I was like, this feels a little out of place, this chapter, like... Why doesn't this add up? But it was so early in the book that I kind of didn't have my head around the characters yet. So it I was expecting it to all click into place. And then, you know, I uploaded the episode and everything. Uh, and then it quickly came to light that, yeah, I'd, I'd read a, a chapter from literally 600 pages later than I was meant to. <laughs> um, so I actually took that down, you know, and redid the episode and re-uploaded it. So a few people would have heard that few people might have heard this chapter already um and other people were probably completely unaware that that even happened um so anyway there's a chance i've already read this chapter I'm, i'm pretty sure i have but it's somewhere around here here we go excuse me jeez oh man this coffee is just sticking with me Chapter 5. The marriage of which little Johan had been the issue had never lost charm in the town as a subject of conversation, since both of the parties to it were still felt to have something queer about them. The union itself must partake of that character of the strange and uncanny which they each possessed. To get behind it even a little, to look beneath the scanty outward facts to the bottom of the relation seemed... A difficult but certainly a stimulating task, and in bedrooms and sitting rooms, in clubs and casinos, yes, even on change itself, people still talked about Goethe and Thomas Buddenbrook. 
How had these two come to marry and what sort of relationship was theirs? Everybody remembered the sudden resolve of Thomas Buddenbrook 18 years ago when he was 30 years old. This one or no one, he had said, it must have been something of the same sort with Gerda, for it was well known that she had refused everybody up to her 27th year and then forthwith lent an ear to this particular wooer. It must have been a love match, people said. They granted that the 300,000 Thaler had probably not played much of a role, but of that which any ordinary person would call love, there was very little to be seen between the pair. They had displayed from the very beginning a correct, respectful politeness, quite extraordinary between husband and wife, and what was still more odd, it seemed not to pro proceed out of any inner estrangement, but out of a peculiar, silent, deep, mutual knowledge. This had not all altered, not at all altered with the years. The one change due to the passage of time was an outward one. It was only this, that the difference in years began to make itself plainly visible. When you saw them together, you felt that here was a rapidly aging man, already a little heavy, with his young wife at his side. Thomas Buddenbrook was going off very much at this, despite the now almost laughable vanity by which he kept himself up. On the other hand, Goethe had scarcely altered in these 18 years. She seemed to be, as it were, conserved in the nervous coldness which was the essence of her being. Her lovely dark red hair had kept its colour, the white skin its smooth texture, the figure its lofty aristocratic slimness. In the corners of her rather too small and close-set brown eyes were the same blue shadows. You could not trust those eyes. Their look was strange, and what was written in it impossible to decipher. This woman's personality was so cool, un so reserved, so repressed, so distant, she showed so little human warmth for anything but her music. How could one help feeling a vague mistrust? People unearthed wise old sores on the subject of human nature and replied them to Senator Bottenbrook's wife. Still, waters, still waters were known to run deep. Some people were slyer than foxes, and as they searched for an explanation, their limited imagination soon led them to the theory that the lovely Gerda was deceiving her ageing husband. They watched, and before long, they felt sure that Gerda's conduct, to put it mildly, passed to the bounds of propriety in her relationship with her Lieutenant von Throter. René Maria von Throter came from the Rhineland. <coughs> he was second lieutenant of one of the infantry battalions quartered in the town. The red collar went well with his black hair, which he wore parted on the side and combed back in a high, thick, curling crest from his white forehead. He looked big and strong enough, but was most unmilitary in speech and manner. He had a way of running one hand in between the buttons of his half-open undress coat and of sitting with his head supported on the back of his hand. His bowels were devoid of military stiffness, and you could not hear his heels click together as he made them. And he had no more respect for his uniform than for ordinary clothes. Even the slim, youthful moustaches that ran slantwise down to the corners of his mouth had neither point nor consistency. They only confirmed the unmarital impression he gave. The most remarkable thing about him 
was his eyes, so large, black, and extraordinarily brilliant, that they seemed like glowing, bottomless depths when he visited anything or anybody with his glance, which was sparkling, ardent, or languishing by turns. He had probably gone into the army against his will, or at least without any inclination for it, and despite his physique, he was no good in the service. He was unregarded by his comrades, and shared but little in their interests, the interests and pleasures of young officers lately, back from a victorious campaign, and they found him a disagreeable oddity, who did not care for horses, or hunting, or play, or women. All his thoughts were bent on music. He was to be seen at all the concerts with his languishing eyes and his lax, unmilitary theatrical attitudes. On the other hand, he despised the club and the casino, and never went near them. <coughs> he made the duty calls which his position demanded, but the Buttonbrook House was the only one at which he visited. Too much, people thought, and the senator himself thought so too. No one dreamed what went on in Thomas Buttonbrook. No one must guess. But it was just this keeping everybody in ignorance of his mortification, his hatred, his powerlessness, that was so cruelly hard. People were beginning to find him a little ludicrous, but perhaps their laugh would have turned to pity if they had even dimly suspected how much he was on his guard against their laughter. He had seen it coming long before, he had felt it beforehand, before anyone else had such an idea in his head. His much carped at vanity had its source largely in his fear. He had been first to see with dismay the growing disparity between himself and his lovely wife on whom the years had not laid a finger, and now since advent of her Tom her von Thrutter, he had to fight with the last rem remnant of his strength to dissimulate his own misgivings in order that they might not make him a laughing stock in the eyes of the community. Gerda Buddenbrook and the eccentric young officer met each other naturally in the world of music. Her von Thrutter played the piano, violin, viola, cello, and flute, and played them all unusually well. Often the senator became aware of an impending visit when Herr von Thruter's man passed the office door with his master's cello case on his back. Thomas Buttonbrook would sit at his desk and watch until he saw his wife's friend enter the house. Then, overheard in the salon, the harmonies would rise and surge like waves, with singing, lamenting, unearthly jubilation, would lift like clasped hands outstretched towards heaven, would float in vague ecstasies would sink and die away into sobbing into night and silence. But they might roll and seethe, weep and exult, foam up and enfold each other as unnaturally as they liked. They were not the worst. The worst, the actually torturing thing, was the silence. It would sometimes reign so long, so long and so profoundly above there in the salon that it was impossible not to feel afraid of it. There would be no tread upon the ceiling, not even a chair would move, simply a soundless, speechless, deceiving, secret silence. Thomas Buttonbrook would sit there, and the torture was such that he sometimes softly groaned. What was it that he feared? Once more, people had seen her von Thruter enter his house, and with their eyes, he beheld the picture just as they saw it. Below, an aging man, worn out and crotchety, sat at his window in the office, Above, his beautiful wife made music with her lover, and not that alone. 
Yes, that was the way the thing looked to them. He knew it. He was aware, too, that the word lover was not really descriptive of her von Throter. It would have been almost a relief if it were. If he could have understood and despised him as an empty-headed ordinary youth who worked off his average endowment of high spirits in a little music and thus beguiled the feminine heart. He tried to think of him like that. He tried to summon up the instincts of his father to meet the case. The instincts of the thrifty merchant against the frivolous, adventurous, unreliable military caste. He called her von Throter the lieutenant and tried to think of him as that, but in his heart he was conscious that the name was inappropriate. What was it that Thomas Buddenbrook feared? Nothing, nothing to put a name to it. If there had only been something tangible, some simple, brutal fact, something to defend himself against. He envied people the simplicity of their conceptions, for while he sat there in torments, with his head in his hands, he knew all too well that betrayal, adultery, were not words to describe the single, the singing things, the abysmally silent things that were happening up there. He looked up sometimes at the grey gables, at the people passing by, at the jubilee present hanging above his desk with portraits of his forefathers. He thought of the history of his house and said to himself that this was all that was wanting, that his person should become a byword, his name and family life, a scandal among the people. This was all that was lacking to set the crown upon the whole. And the thought, again, almost did him good because it was a simple, comprehensible, normal thought that one could think and express quite another matter from this brooding over a mysterious disgrace, a blot upon the family, sc- family's scutcheon. <clears throat> he could bear it no more. He shoved back his chair, left the office and went upstairs. Whither should he go? Into the salon, to be greeted with unembarrassed slight, condescension by her von Throter, to ask him to supper and be refused, for one of the worst features of the case was that the lieutenant avoided him, refused all official invitations from the head of the house and confined himself to the free and private intercourse with its mistress. Shall he wait? Should he wait? Sit downstairs somewhere, perhaps, in the smoking room, until the lieutenant went, and then go to Gerda and speak out and call her to account? Oh, ah, one did not speak out with Gerda. One did not call her to account. Why should one? Their alliance was based on mutual consideration, tact, and silence. To become a laughing stock before her too, no, surely he was not called upon to do that. To play the jealous husband would be to grant that outsiders were right, to proclaim a scandal to cry it aloud. Was he jealous? Of whom? Of what? Alas, no, jealousy. The word meant action, mistaken, crazy, wrong action, perhaps, but at least action, energetic, fearless, and conclusive, No, he only felt a slight anxiety, a harassing worry over the whole thing. He went into the dressing room and bathed his face with eau de cologne. Then he descended to the music room, determined to break the silence there, cost what it would. He laid his hand on the doorknob, but now the music struck up again with a stormy outburst of sound, and he shrank back. One day in such an hour he was leaning over the balcony, of the second floor, looking down the well of the staircase, everything was quite still. Little Johan came out of his room, down the gallery steps and across the corridor on his way to Ida Jungmann's room. He slipped along the wall with his book 
and would have passed his father with lowered eyes and a murmured greeting, but the senator spoke to him. Well, Hanno, and what are you doing? Studying my lessons, Papa. I'm going to Ida to have her hear my translation. Well, and what do you have tomorrow? Hanno, still looking down, made an obvious effort to give a prompt, alert and correct answer to the question he swallowed once and again. We have Cornelius Nepos, some accounts to copy, French grammar, the rivers of North America, German theme correcting. He stopped and felt provoked with himself. He could not remember any more, and wished he had said, and, and let his voice fall. It sounded so abrupt and unfinished. Nothing else, he said, as decidedly as he could, without looking up. But his father did not seem to be listening. He held Hanno's free hand and played with it absently, unconsciously fingering the slim fingers. And then Hanno heard something that had nothing to do with the lessons at all. His father's voice in a tone he had never heard before, low, distressed, almost imploring Hanno. The lieutenant has been more than two hours with Mama. Little Hanno opened wide his gold-brown eyes at the sound, and they looked as never before clear, large and loving, straight into his father's face, with its reddened eyelids under the light brows, with puffy white cheeks and long stiff moustache. God knows how much he understood, but one thing they both felt in the long second when their eyes met, all constraint, coldness and misunderstanding melted away. Hanno might fail his father in all that demanded vitality, energy and strength, but where fear and suffering were in question there, Thomas Buttonbrook could count on the devotion of his son on that common ground they met at one, as one. He did not realise this, he tried not to realise it. In the days that followed, he urged Hanno on more sternly than ever to practical preparations for his future career. He tested his mental powers, pressed him to commit himself upon the subject of his calling, and grew irritated at every sign of rebellion or fatigue, for the truth was that Thomas Buttonbrook at the age of 48 began to feel that his days were numbered and to reckon with his own approaching death. His health had failed, loss of appetite, sleeplessness, dizziness and the chills to which he had always been subject forced him several times to call Dr. Langles. But he did not follow the doctor, the doctor's orders. His willpower had grown flabby in these years of idleness or petty activity. He slept late in the morning, though every evening he made an angry resol resolve to rise early and take the prescribed walk before breakfast. Only two or three times did he actually carry out the resolve, and it was the same with everything else, and the, the consultant, the sorry, the constant effort to spur on his will with the constant failure to do so consumed his self-respect and made him a prey to despair. He never even tried to give up his cigarettes. He could not do without the pleasant narcotic effect. He had smoked them from his youth up. He told Dr. Langhall to his vapid face, You see, doctor, it is your duty to forbid me cigarettes, a very easy and agreeable duty, but I have to obey the order. That is my share, and you can look on it on on at it. No, we will work together over my health, but I find the work unevenly divided. Too much of yours falls to me. Don't laugh, it is no joke. One is so frightfully alone. Well, I smoke. Will you have one? He offered his case. All his powers were on the decline. What strengthened in him was the conviction that it could not last, that the end was close at hand. He suffered from 
strange, apprehensive fancies. Sometimes, at table, it seemed to him that he was no longer sitting with his family, but hovering above them somewhere, and looking down upon them from a great distance. I am going to die, he said to himself, and he would call Hanover to him repeatedly and say, My son, I may be taken away from you sooner than you think, and then you will be called upon to take my place. I was called upon very young myself. Can you understand that I am troubled by your indifference? Are you now resolved in your mind? Yes, or yes is no answer. Again, you won't answer me. What I ask you is, have you resolved bravely and joyfully to take up your burden do you imagine that you won't have to work, that you will have enough money without? You will have nothing, or very little. You will be thrown upon your own resources. If you want to live, and live well, you will have to work hard, harder even than I did. But this was not all. It was not only the burden of his son's future, the future of his house, that weighed him down. There was another thought that took command, that mastered him, and spurred on his weary thoughts. And it was this, as soon as he began to think of his mortal end, not as an indefinite remote event, almost a contingency, but as something near and tangible for which it behoved him to prepare, he began to investigate himself to examine his relations to death and questions of another world. And his earliest researches in this kind discovered in himself an irremediable unpreparedness. His father had united with his hard practical sense a literal faith fanatical Bible Christianity which his mother in her latter years had adhered to as well but to himself it had always been rather repellent. The worldly scepticism of his grandfather had been more nearly his own attitude. But the comfortable superficiality of old Johann could not satisfy his metaphysical and spiritual needs and he ended by finding in evolution the answer to all his questions about eternity and immortality, he said to himself that he had lived in his forebears and would live on in his descendants. And this line which he had taken coincided not only with his sense of family, his patrician self, his patrician self-consciousness, his ancestor worship, as it were, yet it also strengthened his ambition and through them the whole course of his existence. But now, before the near and penetrating eye of death, it fell away, it was nothing. It gave him not one single hour of calm, of readiness for the end. Thomas Buddenbrook had played now and then throughout his life with an inclination to Catholicism, but he was, at bottom, none the less the more Protestant. Full of the true Protestant's passionate, relentless sense of personal responsibility. No, in the ultimate things there was, there could be no help from outside, no mediation, no absolution, no soothing syrup, no panacea. Each one of us alone, unaided of his own powers, must unravel the riddle before it was too late, must wring for himself a pious readiness for before the hour of death, or else part in despair. Thomas Buddenbrook turned away, desperate and hopeless, from his only son, in whom he had once hoped to live on, renewed and strong, and began in fear and haste to seek for the truth which must somewhere exist for him. It was high summer of the year 1874. Silvery high-piled clouds drifted across the deep blue sky above the garden's dainty symmetry. The birds twittered, 
in the boughs of the walnut tree. The fountain splashed among the irises, and the scent of the lilacs floated on the breeze, mingled, alas, with the smell of hot syrup from a sugar factory nearby. To the astonishment of the staff, the senator now often left his work during office hours to pace up and down in the garden with his hands behind his back, or to work about raking the gravel paths, tying up the rose bushes, or dredging mud out of the fountain. His face, with its light eyebrows, seemed serious and attentive as he worked, but his thoughts travelled far away in the dark on their lonely, painful path. Sometimes he seated himself on the little terrace in the pavilion, now entirely overgrown with green, and stared across the garden at the red brick rear wall of the house. The air was warm and sweet. It seemed as though the peaceful sounds about him strove to lull him to sleep. Weary of loneliness and silence and staring into space, he would close his eyes now and then, only to snatch them open and harshly frightened peace away. I must think, he said almost aloud. I must arrange everything before it is too late. He sat here one day in the pavilion in the little reed rocking chair and read for four hours with growing absorption in a book which had partly by chance come into his hands. After second breakfast, a cigarette in mouth, he had unearthed it in the smoking room from behind some stately volumes in the corner of a bookcase and recalled that he had bought it at a bargain one day years ago. It was a large volume, poorly printed on cheap paper and poorly sewed, the second part only of a famous philosophical system. He had brought it out with him into the garden, and now he turned the pages profoundly interested. He was filled with a great surpassing satisfaction. It soothed him to see how a master mind could lay hold on this strong, cruel, mocking thing called life and enforce it and condemn it. His was the gratification of the sufferer who has always had a bad conscience about his sufferings and concealed them from the gaze of a harsh, unsympathetic world. <coughs> Excuse me. Until suddenly from the hand of the, an authority he receives, as it were, justification and license for his suffering. Justification before the world. This best of all possible worlds, which the mastermind scornfully demonstrates to be the worst of all possible ones. He did not understand it all. Principles and premises remained unclear, and his mind, unpracticed in such readings, was not able to follow certain trains of thought. But this very alternation of vagueness and clarity, of dull incomprehension, with sudden bursts of light, kept him enthralled and breathless, and the hours vanished without his looking up from his book or changing his position in his chair. He had left some pages unread in the beginning of the book and hurried on, clutching rapidly after the main thesis, reading only this or that section which held his attention. Then he struck on a comprehensive chapter and read it from beginning to end, his lips tightly closed and his brows drawn together with a concentration which had long been strange to him, completely withdrawn from the life about him. The chapter was called On Death and Its Relation to Our Personal Immortality. Only a few lines remained when the servant came through the garden at four o'clock to call him to dinner. He nodded, read the remaining sentences, closed the book, and looked about him. He felt that his whole being had unaccountably expanded, and at the same time there clung about his senses a profound intoxication, a strange, sweet, vague allurement, which somehow resembled the feelings of early love and longing. 
He put away the book in the drawer of the garden table. His hands were cold and unsteady. His head was burning and he felt in it a strange pressure and strain, as though something were about to snap. He was not capable of consecutive thought. What was this? He asked himself the question as he mounted the stairs and sat down to table with his family. What was it? Have I had a revelation? What has happened to me, Thomas Buddenbrook, counsellor of this government, head of the grain firm of Johann Buddenbrook? Was this message meant for me? Can I bear it? I don't know what it was. I only know it is too much for my poor brain. He remained the rest of the day in this condition, this heavy, heavy lethargic and intoxication. Overpowered by the heady draught he had drunk, incapable of thought, evening came, his head was heavy, and since he could hold it up no longer, he went early to bed. He slept for three hours, more profoundly than ever before in his life, and then suddenly, abruptly, with a start, he awoke and felt, as one feels on realising, suddenly, a budding love in the heart. He was alone in the large sleeping chamber, for Gerda slept now in Ida Jungmann's room, and the latter had moved into one of the three balcony rooms to be nearer little Johann. It was dark, for the curtains of both high windows were tightly closed. He lay on his back, feeling the oppression of the stillness and of the heavy warm air, and looked up into the darkness, and behold, it was as though the darkness were rent from before his eyes, as if the whole wall of the night parted wide and disclosed an immeasurable boundless prospect of light. I shall live, said Thomas Buddenbrook, almost aloud, and felt his breast shaken with inward sobs. sobs. This is the revelation that I shall live, for it will live, and that is this it is not I, is only an illusion, an error which death will make plain. This is it, this is it, why? But at this question the night closed in upon again, upon, again upon him. He saw, he knew, he understood no least particle more. He let himself sink deep into the pillows, quite blinded and exhausted by the morsel of truth which had been vouchsafed. He lay still and waited fervently, feeling himself tempted to pray that it would come again and eradicate his darkness, and it came with folded hands, not daring to move. He lay and looked. What was death? The answer came, not in poor, large-sounding words. He felt in within him. He possessed it. Death was a joy so great, so deep, that it could be dreamed of only in moments of revelation like the present. It was the return from the unspeakably painful wandering, the correction of a grave mistake, the loosening of chains, the opening of doors. It put right again a lamentable mischance. End. Dissolution. These were pitiable words, and thrice pitiable he who used them. What would end? What would dissolve? Why this his body, this heavy, faulty, hateful encumbrance which prevented him from being something other and better? Was not every human being a mistake and a blunder? Was he not in painful arrest from the hour of his birth? Prison, prison, bonds and limitations everywhere. The human being stares hopelessly through the barred window of his personality at the high walls of outward circumstance till death comes and calls him home to freedom. Individuality, all, all that one is, can, and has, seems poor, grey, inadequate, wearisome, that one is not, cannot, has not, that is what one looks at with a longing desire that becomes love because it fears to become hate. I bury myself the seed, the tendency, the possibility of all capability and all achievement. Where should I be were I not here? Who, what, how could I be if I were not I, if this, my external self, my consciousness, did not cut me out from those who I are not? Organism, blind, thoughtless, pitiful eruption of the urging will, 
better indeed for the will to float free in spaceless timeless night than for it to languish in prison, illumined by the feeble flickering light of the intellect. Have I hoped to live on in my son, in a personality yet more feeble flickering and timorous than my own? Blind, childish folly, what can my son do for me? What need have I of a son? Where shall I be when I am dead? Ah, it is so brilliantly clear, so overwhelmingly simple, I shall be in all those who have ever, do ever, or shall ever say I, especially, however, in all those who say it most fully, potently and gladly. Somewhere in the world, a child is growing up strong, well-grown, adequate, able to develop its powers, gifted, untroubled, pure, joyous, relentless, one of those beings whose glance heightens the joy of the joyous and drives the unhappy to despair. He is my son, he is I, myself, soon, soon, as soon as death frees me from the wretched delusion that I am not he as well as myself. Have I ever hated life, pure, strong, relentless life, folly and misconception? I have but hated myself because I could not bear it. I love you, I love you all, you blessed, and soon, soon I shall cease to be cut off from you all by the narrow bonds of myself. Soon will that in me which loves you be free and be in and with you, in and with you all. He wept, he pressed his face into the pillows and wept, shaken through and through, lifted up in transports by a joy without compare for its exquisite sweetness. This it was which since yesterday had filled him as if with a heady, intoxicating draught, had worked in his heart in the darkness of the night and roused him like a budding love, and in so far as he could now understand and recognize not in words and consecutive thoughts but in sudden rapturous illuminations of his inmost being, he was already free, already actually released and free of all natural as well as artificial limitations. The walls of his native town in which he had willfully and consciously shut himself up, opened out, they opened and disclosed to his view the entire world of which he had in his youth seen this or that small portion and of which death now promised him the whole. The deception, perceptions of space, time and history, the preoccupation with the glorious historical continuity of life in the person of his own descendants, the dread of some future final dissolution and decomposition, all this his spirit now put aside. He was no longer prevented from grasping eternity. Nothing but ga- nothing began, nothing left off. There was only an endless present, and that power in him which loved life with a love so exquisitely sweet and yearning, the power of which his person was only unsuccessful, was only the unsuccessful expression. That power would always know how to find access to this present. I shall live, he whispered into his pillow. He wept, and in the next moment knew not why. His brain stood still. The vision was quenched. Suddenly there was nothing more. He lay in dumb darkness. It will come back, he assured himself. And before sleep inexorably wrapped him round, he swore to himself never to let go this precious treasure, but to read and study to learn its powers and to make inalienably his own the whole conception of the universe out of which his vision sprang. But that could not be. Even the next day, as he woke with a faint feeling of shame at the emotional extravagances of the night, he suspected that it would be hard to put these beautiful designs into practice. He rose late and had to go at once to take part in the debate at the assembly of Burgesses. 
public business, the civic life that went on in the gabled narrow streets of this middle-sized trading city, consumed his energies once more. He still planned to take up the wonderful reading again where he had left it off, but he questioned himself, but he questioned of himself whether, <coughs> oh, geez, excuse me, whether the events of that night had been anything firm and permanent, whether when death approached they would be found to hold their ground. His middle-class instincts rose against him and his vanity too, the fear of being eccentric, of playing a laughable role. Had he really seen these things and did they really become him, him, Thomas Buddenbrook, head of the firm of Johann Buddenbrook? He never succeeded in looking again into the precious volume to say nothing of buying its other parts. His days were consumed by nervous pedantry, harassed by a thousand details, all of them unimportant. He was too weak-willed to arrive at a reasonable and fruitful arrangement of this of his time. Nearly two weeks after that memorable afternoon, he gave it up and ordered the maidservant to fetch the book from the drawer in the garden table and replace it in the bookcase, and thus Thomas Buddenbrook, who had held his hand stretched imploringly upward toward the high ultimate truth, sank now weakly back to the images and conceptions of his childhood. He strove to call back that personal God, the father of all human beings, who had sent a part of himself upon earth to suffer and bleed for our sins, and who, on the final day, would come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose feet the justified, in the course of the eternity then beginning, would be recompensed, for the sorrows they had borne in this veil of tears. Yes, he strove to subscribe to the whole confused, unconvincing story which required no intelligence, only obedient credulity. credulity. And which, when the last anguish came, would sustain one in the firm and childlike faith. But would it really... Ah, uh, even here there was no peace, this poor, well-nigh exhausted man consumed with gnawing fears for the honour of his house, his wife, his child, his name, his family. This man who spent painful effort even to keep his body artificially erect and well-preserved. This poor man tortured himself for days with thoughts upon the moment and manner of death. How would it really be? Did the soul go to heaven immediately after death, or did bliss first begin with the resurrection of the flesh? And if so, where did the soul stay until that time? He did not remember ever having been taught this. Why had he not been told this important fact in school or church? How was it justifiable for them to leave people in such uncertainty? He considered visiting Pastor Pringsheim and seeking advice and counsel, but he gave it up in the end for fear of being ridiculous. And finally he gave it all up. He left it all to God, but having come to such an unsatisfactory ending of his attempts to set his spiritual affairs in order, he determined at least to spare no pains over his earthly ones and to carry out a plan which he had long entertained. One day little Johann heard his father tell his mother as they drank their coffee in the living room after the midday meal that he expected lawyer so-and-so to make his will. He really ought not to keep on putting it off. Later in the afternoon, Hanno practiced his music for an hour. Then he went down the corridor. After that, he met, coming up the stairs, his father and a gentleman in a long black overcoat. Hanno, said the senator curtly, and little Johann stopped, swallowed, and said quickly and softly, Yes, Papa. I have some important business with this gentleman, his father went on. Will you stand before the door into the smoking room and take care that nobody, absolutely nobody, you understand, disturbs us? Yes, Papa, said little Johann, and took up his post before the door, 
which closed after the two gentlemen. He stood there clutching his sailor's knot with one hand, felt with his tongue for a doubtful tooth and listened to the earnest, subdued voices which could be heard from inside. His head, with the curling light brown hair, he held on one side, and his face with the frowning brows and blue-shadowed gold-brown eyes wore that same displeased and brooding look with which he had inhaled the odour of the flowers and that other strange yet half-familiar odour by his grandmother's beer. Ida Jungman passed and said, Well, little Hanno, why are you hanging about here? And the humpbacked apprentice came out of the office with a telegram and asked for the senator. But both times little Johan put his arm in its blue sailor sleeve with the anchor on it horizontally across the door. Both times he shook his head and said softly after a pause, No one may go in. Papa is making his will. And that's that chapter. I have read that before. So there you go. Very cool. Alright, thanks for listening. And I'll see you tomorrow.